You're listening to The DAP Project. Welcome, y'all. I am Rhonda Elizabeth, your co-host. And I'm your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. The DAP Project is a podcast that explores politics and culture through the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture, The DAP. Our guests for this conversation about resilience are Mitch Brooks and Tristan Wilkerson. They are investors, entrepreneurs, and the co-founders of High Street Equity Partners. And Mitch is a sixth-generation Washingtonian, natives out here doing big things. Yes, indeed. I'm glad we're able to share their dynamic as friends and business partners with the TDP fam, like MJ and Pippin, Kid and Play, Men at Large. Alrighty then, yes. That's right, but seriously. It's dope to see these brothers partner to support emerging entrepreneurs and to close the wealth gap. Now, the disturbing fact about venture capital is that white men control 93% of venture capital dollars. But as Tristan powerfully says during this conversation, we would not be resilient if we saw the adversity but did not see the opportunity. I love that. Yeah, that is so true. This is their life's work. And knowing their why and their purpose allows them to move through the obstacles of their work. Let's get into it. All right, it is our pleasure to have Mitch Brooks and Tristan Wilkerson, founders of High Street Equity Partners, join us for a podcast conversation. Welcome to the Debt Project, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, appreciate the invitation. So Rhonda expressed her curiosity and DAP over lunch back in November 2019. We were eager to do the research and learn more about what we have come to call the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. Since then, the DAP project was born, and now we must know from you two, what is your earliest memory of DAP? My earliest memory of DAP? I think it had to be from uh, my older relatives. Um, my, my brother is about 10 years older than me. And I think that I learned a lot about style and swag and just uh, Black culture as a kid, like watching him. About how old were you? Guess that. How old do you think you were? I would say, uh, I think we grew up fast <laughs> in, in my D.C. neighborhood. I would say about seven or so, seven or eight. And I mean, it was very clear, like a, a, a greeting of friends and loved ones, right? That isn't something that you just gave to everyone just because, or just because it was a new face, uh, at least uh, not for me and, and not for my family. It was, it was a way to like warmly embrace and show love uh, as a sign of greeting. And, you know, it was, I'm glad to see you. It's good to see you again. So uh, that's what it meant for me. I'm going to jump in here. My pops put me on DAP back in the day. So much like my four, soon to be five-year-old daughter is nowadays, and she may or may not make an appearance tonight, so be forewarned. But um, I was I was in grown folks business when I was young. So, so and so that what that meant is is that uh, 
And of course, you know, I, I, I follow my dad around and I'm the eldest of three. So I would see him interacting with his siblings and with others. And he was the cool uncle or is the cool uncle to watch him just both give love, but also receive so much love from folks, you know, had me enamored, completely enamored. So we had our own little handshake, secret handshake, you know, we remix it every now and again. And we called it that. And it was it was our own little world. Y'all have seen Jordan Peele. Is it Jordan Peele? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Peele. yeah. Classic skit, you know, where he's dapping up, like pretending to be Barack Obama. And oh, yeah. the black folks, he dap him up and it's like a thing. That right there, I'm just grateful I got it from my pops because uh, that's that's helped me build and forge a lot of relationships. In my yeah. Uh, we, we need to coin the CAU. I mean, I love Clark Atlanta University, but we also that also means cool ass uncle. So I'm glad to hear to get cool ass <laughs> uncle reintroduced to the DAP project. Uh, we, we've heard that a few times from from us, some of our guests. As entrepreneurs, uh, investors, and being a resource for venture capital to new businesses. Um, what is is there a debt that ever goes on when you close a deal? That's a great question. Yeah, I'll I'll start by saying that um one of the things that I um, love about Tristan and uh, and there there's some backstory to this that I'll get into, uh, but one of the things is that uh, being able to be financially independent and successful gives you some freedom to be your authentic self. And I think that for for some folks, they would say, you know, that should always be the case. Um, but personally, I find that it's absolutely and definitely the case um, with, with some uh, financial independence. And so what I love about Tristan uh, is that um, that's the case for him, man. And, and it's beautiful to see it as a Black man uh, and uh, and it's encouraging, and I I, I can tell, and I, I think that he uh, would feel similarly and, and say similar thoughts. And so it, the reality is, whether we close a deal or when we just meet and folks or whatever that space may be, um, we feel strongly that we're going to be our authentic selves. And the reality is, is that we want to do business with people that love that and that can embrace that. Um, and, and we find it concerning uh, and don't want to do business with folks that can't. So as you find yourselves in a range of different social and professional settings, do you ever find yourself showing preferences for the standard handshake versus giving that? What you're reminding me of is um, just those times in, in our careers where we um, are aspiring, we're learning, we're trying to figure out the culture whatever the culture may be. And oftentimes, you know, and I think a lot of cultures have shifted uh, in the last few years, especially uh, with all the movement that's taken place socially. But, you know, certainly prior to, I'll never forget working at Wells Fargo um, as a, an intern, so to speak, or yeah, doing an externship in summer when I was an undergrad. And I worked for a, a black man um, who was, brilliant he ran a whole facility doing refinance stuff and uh, he's like he was telling me yeah man you know you can you can do this too you just stay the course and i'm like okay i mean he's and he's really putting the gas on he's telling me how he, he's 
bought a brand new 740 on a credit card. And, you know, he's doing things that me from Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, and I haven't seen that kind of wealth before. It's really like, okay, how do you do this though? Like break it down. Um, but he, 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 I didn't leave Vegas, which is where that, where we were, uh, before he told me, now, you know, you got to cut your hair. And I'm thinking to myself, interesting. <laughs> and as <laughs> I'm like, hmm, for who, right? Um, you know, I, I paid for it, but I didn't have to cut my hair pledging out for it. I'm going to supposed to cut my hair somewhere else. So, so, but it, it told me that there was a, there's a corporate culture that I was about to walk into and in the political space, it definitely exists. Uh, and there was, there were often times where uh, you don't always know, you know, you maybe it's a brother, but they're on the other side of the aisle and you're like, uh, could I dap them up? You know, mm-hmm. you always do the head nod. So you're not really sure, you know what I mean? <laughs> what kind of right. response you might get. Uh. So, so yeah, it happened, it happened a lot, but I will say now having spent, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm over a decade into my career now and, and actually embarking on a second career. And I feel way more empowered, um, having worked through all of those challenges and just learning and understanding the differences that we share between people and in different cultures and different workspaces. This season, uh, we're exploring resilience. Uh, in the last year, we've had a, to demonstrate tremendous resilience in order to adjust to a new normal. We want to suggest that resilience has three parts, a goal, an obstacle, and a recovery. You wouldn't have to demonstrate resilience if there wasn't a destination that you were aiming towards. What's your definition of resilience? Mitch has a some words to live by that I think absolutely squarely answer that question. I well, might, that's a setup. I'm not going to say it right, so I'm going to leave it for you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tristan. You see that partnership there? Mm-hmm. Uh, resilience. Um, are you referring to the, what you do with how you do anything is how you do everything, bro? Right. Yep. Yeah. So those are my my words to live by. The phrase is how you do anything is how you do everything. It's my belief that how we show up, uh, regardless of how small the task is, uh, I feel like it tells uh, who we are as people. It it speaks to our character and what we'll do uh, for everything. And, And similarly, you know, connected to to the Bible, you know, uh, how you take care of small things is what you'll do with big things. Now, connected to resilience, when when I think about that, you know, I mainly think about um, your why and and what are you working towards and why are you working towards it? And I think it's very difficult to have resilience without discipline and without purpose, uh, because I, I feel as though you'll have plenty of reasons to just stop and quit along the way and and find something else to occupy your time or find something else to do. Um, so uh, to me, the, like the foundation of that is discipline and its purpose. 
and so I I don't know if sort of the question is, you know, what advice I would give the folks <laughs> on the topic. Um, but at the foundation of resilience for me are those two things. Let's stick with this idea of foundation. Okay. Because we think that resilience is a skill that you learn when you're young. Okay. So I'm going to take a quick sidebar and then come back to resilience. So you and I are both from the district and there are two questions that natives always ask each other. What neighborhood and what high school? So I went to Gonzaga for high school. Um, which is on I Street and somewhat close to the Capitol. What neighborhood? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, I lived in all four quadrants of the city. Um, and as a 37 year old man, I've lived in six of the eight wards. As a child, um, uh, is where I have my fondest memories. And so that neighborhood for me would be that. Um, the, the exact street is Oakwood Street, uh, and it's over sort of borderline Bowling Air Force Base, Malcolm X, MLK Avenue. Um, and those, that's where I have my fondest memories, just as a DC resident and as a child. So when you think about growing up in that neighborhood, who taught you early lessons about getting back on your feet? About getting back on my feet. You know, my first thought is my mom. Uh, she was uh, a very resilient woman. Um, and I think seeing that as, as a youngster, uh, in particular as a teen, it stuck with me. Uh, it stuck with me. My, my mom and dad uh, separated when I was around nine or 10 years old. And my mom ended up going back to school uh, while she was raising her three sons. Uh, and. I would see her, you know, up early in the morning doing what she needed to do for us, you know, taking us to school, going to work, picking us up, going to school, and she would have 4.0 GPA every semester. And that stuck with me as a kid. It helped me to be more resilient as a kid, to push through whatever obstacles I felt like I had. And so as, you know, an 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid, Regardless of what was going on, if I had, you know, basketball or practice or, you know, a subject was very difficult, like it was always in my mind that my mom was seemingly a superwoman and that she was resilient throughout all of this. Um, and so that that was really, you know, in the back of my mind that, that pushed me um, to, to push through every obstacle in, in every situation that I was in. So Tristan, you and I are holding down the true South in this conversation. Uh, my paternal grandparents raised my dad in rural Alabama and mm -hmm. I grew up in Texas. Um, my Alabama, Texas roots influenced why I love DC and how I look at the city. As a fellow transplant to DC, how do your Southern family origins impact how you engage with the city? That's a good question. Um, from the moment I got here, um, the ways in which folks engaged, they didn't have to know you from anybody, but be, they would see you and recognize, um, you know, your humanity, 
and if you are a brother, you know, didn't matter where you at, like it was love, some form of it, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's um, it reminds me a lot of, of 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 that Southern culture when you're with family, you know, when y'all at the cookout. I mean, the way the folk cook out in D.C., oh, we know where the roots are. We know where y'all get that from, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so you know, it might not be eating as much swine as we do down in the south, but you know. That that was if that was the only adjustment I could I could get with it. Um, so there's a lot of in many ways comfort that I feel here in the district that reminds me a whole lot of um, of what uh, what we aspired to, what my grandparents aspired to. You know, we used to farm. It, I'm a I'm the grandson of sharecroppers and church folk, but wasn't a whole lot of black farming you know that my uncles and aunts were doing so as as the family business began to wind down in the you know 60s late 60s um uh we our family turned to other opportunities and began to uh seek education which was a huge priority for us uh, coming and then of course um a lot of folks would move into bigger cities looking for opportunity and so um, being here in DC, finding my way, connecting with my brothers like Mitch and, uh, and being able to build, um, build something and build on the values that I inherited from my folks, my grandparents and others, I think makes them proud. And I think it makes me proud to be able to carry on that legacy turn a little bit to talk about the profession that you all have chosen as venture capitalists. Um, but first, I think we should establish what you saw in each other that allowed you to say, we can do business together. I'll say it's rather divine, wouldn't you say, Mitch? <laughs> I love that. Let me <laughs> share, share, share more. Well, let me first say, Mitch, is um, I've known him more than a decade now. Uh, I don't know that I've, I know anyone that I've met here in DC longer than I, than I know Mitch. Uh, Mitch introduced me to investing. And, you know, I knew then that in, in many ways, though I don't know that Mitch, you've ever actually taught a class, but he's quite professorial. You know, <laughs> when you're sitting with him, there's just no way you're not gonna learn something. <laughs> uh, uh, so I got my I got my investment <laughs> intro with Mitch, and I I got hooked. Um, started you know doing things on my own, and I bumped my head a couple times, but uh, but eventually figured it out. And uh, and he continued to do what Mitch does, and that's to that's to make money. <laughs> so I it was my job to make sure I was ready. So oddly enough, <laughs> oddly enough, it was um, what was it 2019. I decided to go ahead and form uh, a, a an investment LLC in part because Mitch had had done a similar thing with his family, and I'm like, oh, that's a great way to protect your investment and to sort of uh, approach how you're going to going to do business in the space more formally. And so I had to establish a vehicle, but like anything that I do, like I'm gonna take it all the way. I'm gonna build the whole train. I'm not. I just not necessarily in a position to 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 conduct it. You know, like I'm not not always the one to, to ride it down the tracks. 
And so I was ready. And, you know, Mitch made the phone call. I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about going into this full time. And I said, okay, I think that's, that sounds right. He said, no, I think I'm, I'm really wanting to dive deep and make a big splash. I said, hey man, you you preaching to the choir. I've been waiting on you. <laughs> and I meant it. This is a true story. He said on. this. He said this. This is a true story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So my my take, uh, I love that story, uh, by the way, bro. Uh, my my take on, on things is that um very much in line with what Tristan said, I believe uh going into business is like uh, going into a marriage with someone. Uh, and I uh, don't take that lightly. And I look to, I tell people all the time when I'm speaking to folks that setting up their businesses um, to make sure you date first, uh, to use that analogy and to make sure you get to know someone and make sure you get to know how they communicate and get to know what they're like doing, you know, all four seasons. And, and, and in all situations and circumstances. Um, and so to Tristan's point, um, I, I, I felt like uh, we've been in business together collectively, uh, but also, you know, we would talk about our business dealings uh, with one another that we were doing independently. Uh, and, you know, I would ask him, so what are you gonna do about that? You know, how are you gonna approach that, right? Uh, and I would also give my advice here and there. And, and I saw how he would um, take my advice and, and, and ask questions. And, you know, a few weeks or a few months later, like there would be a solution to it, right? Uh, and so, um, and, but I think at the, at the core of it, um, I've really just, I've, I've gotten to a place to where I really, um, look to connect with people based on their values and based on their character. And I feel like if I can really get a sense for that, then a lot of other stuff can work itself out um, down the road. Just from a business sense, uh, we, we came together uh, with an investment group um, that was more like an investment club in 2014, 2015 or so. Um, and uh, I, I started that group with a, with a number of guys from Gonzaga. Uh, and then we uh, opened that group up to other folks outside of Gonzaga. Uh, and that's, uh, Tristan was one of the first folks that I wanted to connect with about that. Um, and so he joined that group and we were making investments together. Uh, and then outside of that group, we started to share opportunities that came across our desk uh, and uh, he would get involved in some of investments I had and I would get involved in some of the investments that he had um, and right then I felt pretty strongly that if uh, I were to do investments and sort of take things up a notch in the future that I wanted to be able to work with him and so it, it's a true story that uh, when I spoke with him in 2019 about the idea of a venture firm, um, he was like, hey man, I'm waiting on you. Uh, and, and my reservation around that historically just has always been that I felt very comfortable investing my money and knowing that uh, if things hit the fan, that, that it was a loss that I could take. 
Um, and I didn't feel less comfortable uh, investing other people's money. Um, and uh, just more and more requests started to come in. Uh, and so uh, Tristan and I started to like talk through what that looks like and what that means. And I appreciate him, um, you know, talking to me to, to get me to understand that we open this up to other people. Um, and, and he really did uh, speak to a bigger picture um, about that and, and the idea of building wealth together with others. And, and people know, you know, they're grown adults and they know what they're getting into. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And that was, I'll say, the beginning of us going down this road. So you're entering a space where um, a lot of folks don't look like you. They don't look like us in the VC space as much as folks want to be a part of it. And so that right there tells us that you have to have um, a lot of resilience to be able to be successful and to navigate that kind of environment. So Aaron, give us a little bit more context when I say that folks don't look like us, like what are the numbers behind that? Yeah, we wanna think about wielding economic power uh, and how little economic power we have. You know, The demographics say you know, in the venture capital world, 58% of venture capitalists are white men, 20% Asian men, 11% white women, 6% Asian women, 2% black men, 1% black women, 1% Latinx men, and nearly 0% Latinx women. How do you get nearly zero? I mean, that's just insulting. Yeah. Like that's offensive to be nearly zero. And that's, you know, that's the racial makeup. Then we look at the, where the money is, you know, white men control 93% of the venture capital dollars, 93 cents of every dollar that leaves seven pennies of every dollar for everyone else. That's fucking crazy. Let's just pause for a second and just acknowledge, <laughs> you know, the craziness of that. And if you guys have any initial reactions to those statistics, which I'm sure you're already very familiar with, but hearing it enunciated like that just gave me pause. We knew going into this, um, the stats, um, and to share with you all, uh, we did a um, nine-month uh research and, and due diligence uh, on the space before we uh, decided to definitively move forward. And so that included speaking to uh, black and brown fund managers uh, in the space. Uh, and, and overwhelmingly, they told us the same thing. Um, and, and we had a chance to have a number of conversations. I wanna say over 50 conversations um, with folks in the space, um, just about how do you work through that? Um, and, and how do you become uh, successful? Uh, and what does success look like, right? Um, who are examples of success? And, and Tristan and I deciding if we uh, wanted to follow that roadmap or if we wanted to blaze our own trail in a different way. And, and so uh, the stats that you read off is exactly why uh, we want to make a difference and be in this space. 
uh, you know, we strongly believe that we are uh, looking to meaningfully address the gender and the racial wealth gap by the work that we do. And we acknowledge that this is uh, what will be our life's work to a great degree. Um, and, and we know that there's some uh, economic success in that journey. Um, but for us, at, at the core of it, it's being able to meaningfully change the statistics on, on the gender and the racial wealth gap. Yeah, Rhonda, you asked for immediate reactions. First, Mitch's response is the response. I won't get on my soapbox because I could easily. Yeah. But the, the immediate reaction for me was, was to hear. It just is painful to hear. It really hurts. And I also hear the pain and the lack of opportunity when you talk about so many people, so many more people who have to share such a small a portion of, of what we all should have uh, rightful access to and create value for. But we wouldn't be resilient if we saw the adversity but did not also see opportunity. And so though the table is stacked, so to speak, I, I, what I see also is a lot more room at the table which I think Mitch and I both have taken this approach with, and, and it's evident in, in some of the early, um, uh, some of our early efforts with the fund, how we have really um, worked to build relationships with other fund managers who look like us, how we've worked across the space to really value what everyone else is doing and to see that, you know, we need as much more activity as possible um, to try to unlock this you know, $1.5 trillion worth of gross domestic product that's out there among our people and among folks of color, you know, uh, at the firm I work at, we call them people of the global majority. To hear me, it's like, wow, that's actually true. And so uh, we see tons of opportunity, um, but certainly we're not, not without a lot, of, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of work and a lot of appreciating the work of others, so we'll find our place, but we've got plans to to go to go big and bigger, um, and continue to find a success where we where we where we will. Um, and you know, I ha I have this idea. I won't share it here. But when Mitch says that this is our life's work, it really is uh, your life's work because everything that you've imagined you could do in terms of the impact you could have, uh, this is the space to be able to really realize a lot of that impact. Let's talk a little about ventures that you believe in and the founders that, that motivate you to keep doing what you're doing uh, as you launched High Street Equity. Uh, let's get in a quick round of truth or not. But people say investors, people say investors don't invest in the business, they invest in the founder. Uh, what say you all, uh, truth or not? I know Tristan's answer, go ahead. I'll let you answer. So uh, I think what's beautiful, right, is that uh, you have a partnership where uh, you see eye to eye on a lot of things and just on life and how to approach life, but you also have differences and, and you appreciate those differences, right? And you play up and you complement those differences, right? So for Tristan, I know that it's uh, the founder, right? Um, and for me, uh, 
it's a little bit of both, but overwhelmingly it's the numbers for me, right? And it's, um, and, and so I would say for me, it's, you know, 70, 30, right? Uh, one way, uh, where I, I would say for Tristan, it may be the other. Yeah, but that's the, that's the BS. You're going to say 90, 10. <laughs> He's 90, 10, okay? Right. You can be an amazing person and great founder, but if the, if the money don't make sense and the business ain't working, then we, you know, we can take up an offering, but we can't make an investment. <laughs> So if the math ain't math, then it's right. a wrap. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, yes. Now, with that being said, I think that um, for us, we have uh, five pillars to what determines uh, us making an investment uh, and, and having a good management team and the resilient management team is the exact word that we use or phrase that we use. Uh, is one of those five pillars. Um, and, and so I, I do think that it's, an, it's important, um, but, but I, I, you know, for me, it, it's, it's definitely a matter of having a solid business and business model. And, and my assumption baked into that is that really smart people um, and resilient folks got it to that point and helped it to get there. Um, and, and so then I think if it's borderline or close enough to it, then I'm, I'm saying to myself, like, you know, I'm going to bet on you, right. Based on who you are and, and who you've shown yourself to be. But yeah, uh, Tristan, w- w- would you agree that, that we have a unique, uh, sort of position and how we both look at that? I would definitely agree with that. Um, I would definitely agree. I mean, part of the notion, Aaron, is that you can have a great business, but you know, but what is it without a strong founder? You know, and I think what we have recognized is that we may come across some really vibrant, energetic founders who are looking to build really strong businesses. So not everything makes the cut for us on the business side of things. However, this is part of our values here is that um, we've been in those spaces before, you know, on the other side of that. And it's, and, and so understanding that we look to add value with more than capital, maybe it's making a certain connection or sharing a certain resource, or in some cases, which I think is, is fantastic. I don't know if we can afford to continue to do it, but we have resourced, um, folks to support the development of the business. Um, that's much more of a, a function of an incubator, but we felt it was necessary and would add some value and, you know, that entity went over and was able to get some, some funding from other sources from after, after having had that experience with those consultants. So. So what distinguishes a really standout founder, Tristan? This question is for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to sit back and relax and let Mitch go on. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know. You know, Mitch is like numbers, business structure. Got it. And Tristan is thinking about, okay, person. So if you were to, and I'm sure you've had to do this, convince Mitch to bet on that person, what are the qualities that you're going to really hype up to convince him to maybe give a little bit on the 90-10? I would would say that 
uh, if there were like four lanes, you got two lanes going east and two lanes going west, there's sort of passion and purpose and you don't want to have one without the other. It's, an, it's great to be energetic and, you know, sort of have uh, uh, an eye toward aspiration, uh, but it's m almost equally important, if not more important to understand why you're doing it, because you've got to know uh, what the impact of your work really is and means in part because as a founder, part of your job is to articulate value. And so passion sometimes, you know, it, it gets you hot, but it's really just hot air. So at some point you just be hot and bothered. But when you are purposed, <laughs> you know, it, it actually really does, it's more intentional. And so it's a bit more, you know, there's more nuance there and you can hear and understand uh, that this founder is able to articulate their value proposition and their, their income's on the other side. If you can articulate the value, then we're wanting to see, all right, what's your ability to execute uh, and what's your ability to plan and prepare? Uh, not that you can foresee everything, but if you've planned and if you've prepared and you've put everything on paper and you've gone as far as you can go, then when the hiccups arise, you won't be caught off guard as much. You'll know how to pivot. You'll be in position um, to navigate some of those challenges. It gives us a chance to test your resilience. Um, and on the other side, of course, is the execution. You got to follow through. I think one of the things that Mitch and I both value tremendously is, um, is being able, is, is one, because we've been here before, is when someone imparts something to you, is what do you do with that? Uh, so if you, if, you, if you do have, you know, uh, my, my folks would always say, you do the best you can with what you got, right? And so, and then of course, Biblically, you must be faithful over a few things before uh, we cash you the whole lot. So what are you doing with what you got? How well are you executing? And with those investments and those assets and those resources that you do come across, how well are you executing all of those assets to like really fully incorporate them into your plan and really try to make some strides? Uh, look for that. And if there, as much evidence of that that we can see tells us that, yeah, you're serious about this and that with whatever investment, uh, is made into, into your uh, enterprise or the enterprise that you're running, uh, there's a whole lot of faith that you're gonna see it through. That's what makes a founder really strong, I think, in my opinion. Can you tell us about a venture that you invested in? And it was a successful exit, but it was also challenging to get to that point of success. Yeah, so as a fund, we have not had an exit. Um, and so these examples uh, would be uh, more about us as angel investors, either individually or collectively. Um, you know, as I think about uh, the successful investments that I've had and that we've had together, um, not many of them were painful. I, they were all smiles for me. <laughs> and it was a, a really happy time. <laughs> and, and so uh, I have no doubt that that, uh, that may be the case um, going forward with this fund that we have. But fortunately, you know, knock on wood, that hasn't been the case to this point. Um, there have been uh, some investments, um, as I think about this, where um, 
infrastructure that's venture debt and that equity. And I don't want to nerd out too much. Um, but in being structured as venture debt, um, you know, you have a set amount that's supposed to be returned at a set time. And, and you will have entrepreneurs uh, that would miss those deadlines. Um, and, and you have to decide if, you know, if you're going to um, be sweet or be sour with how you approach that, right? And if you're going to look to encourage them and talk to them and the likes, or if you're going to look to get upset and threaten them. And, and my position overwhelmingly has always been to look to be supportive and encourage them and, and just to encourage them uh, to, uh, I would prefer for you to over communicate with me when you have bad news, uh, as opposed to avoid me uh, and to feel like you'll, you'll talk to me uh, or connect with me when you have better news to share. Um, and, and so, yeah. I think that's something that I would pass along to, to any entrepreneur uh, that, that gets uh, into this startup world and, and creates a startup venture. Um, I just think communication uh, is like at the core, effective communication and consistent communication is at the core of what you should do, especially when you have investors. Every investment won't be a hitter. Uh, I love the fact that the track record is pretty sweet so far. Um, but I know just in life and, and probably some investments, there's been a time where you had to regroup when an investment didn't quite go well. Talk to me about what that conversation was like for you and your partner or for the two of you, uh, and specifically how you can bounce back. Tristan over there laughing. <laughs> because I have the great pleasure of um, of being Robin when those conversations have to happen and not having to be Batman. <laughs> I will tell you, it is, it is, it is artful, um, but also really, really straight, you know? Um, you know, Mitch, I'm thinking about that one investment we made during COVID um, <laughs> that we probably wouldn't have made in a, in a pre-post, COVID world. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the conversation and because, you know, mind you, these, these are some younger founders. They, um, uh, they were really, um, inspired by what they were doing. Um, and, but they couldn't turn a corner, uh, in time for us to remain investors in the project. So we, we, we had to pull the plug and Mitch was like, <laughs> we had dinner one night. And, um, and, you know, he's never late. I, usually I'm the one that's late. But in this case, you know, he comes in, he's like, hey, sorry, man. I was on the call, had to, had to pull the plug on, on the fellas. And I was like, oh, he's like, yeah, man, they were hurt. <laughs> I was like, you good? He was like, yeah, I'm great. What are we drinking? I was like, okay, wow, well, you know, and that's, as Mitch, I probably would have stayed on the phone and had, you know, Sunday school or done something to make sure they feel okay. Mitch was like, hey, look, you know, better luck next time. This is what it is. Um, and I think in many ways it's a it's a gift because that is, you have to have that kind of discipline um, when you are uh, in the business of, of money. So I, I admire it, you know, I just, I laugh because it's very easy for him. 
and I don't know exactly where it comes from, but man, he makes it look easy. Yeah, it, it comes from experience. Yeah, I, you know, the, the question becomes, is it sort of a nature or nurture? And I think that uh, something like that is nurtured over time where, where you've learned to compassionately, but in a straightforward way, talk to people through difficult times and to be able to do that in like a human way. And, you know, I, I was late because, you know, I, I wanted to hear them out and make sure that they understood that I was with them uh, as they made their transition to like their next thing. And these are the different options available to them and let me know how I can be a resource. And so, you know, so in that example, um, you're spot on and to a great degree, that's why I was late. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I don't want to harp on it, right? So when that thing is done, that thing is done. And I need to be able to bounce back and go to the next thing. So you all chose the name High Street Equity Partners not in the literal sense of being high like Michael Jordan's 48 inch vertical. High Street goes a little deeper in its meaning uh, for you, Tristan. Uh, will you share this name and its significance uh, for you and Mitch in the venture capital world? Uh, the long and short of it is, um, is there's a high street in every city. It may be called MLK Boulevard, but it's some homage to, um, to what uh, Black wealth, black industry, black business, black Wall Street, what it looked like some time ago. Though High Street was a, was a street that my grandparents uh, grew up on when they moved from Pine Bluff and came off of the farms down in the Delta back in the 60s. Um, uh, it's now Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And if you've been uh, uh, in DC and Anacostia, you see MLK and it is the sort of beacon of, of black business over there, the big chair. You know, I worked for Eleanor Holmes Norton, so I spent many a moons over there near the big chair. And I got a chance to witness a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of what, you know, it looks like today to, to, to support black founders, uh, some Washingtonians and some, some uh, transplant, but to see them find success in our own communities, doing things that, uh, to add a lot of value. So that's the legacy and the spirit that we that we carry with us in the name. Long live Chocolate City, right? So Mitch's question is for you as a sixth generation Washingtonian. Since your family has been here for so long and you witnessed the transition of wealth in the district over the past 20 years and then just generally over the history of the district. I wanted to talk a little bit about your view on legacy. I heard you tell someone that that is really your focus in co-founding and co-leading this venture. Do you see building wealth as a way to maintain a foothold here and even more than a foothold in the district, but a strong presence in the district as you see um, ownership changing and many Washingtonians being pushed out or choosing to move out. Yeah, you get it. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I, 
couldn't articulate it any better. Uh, I think that you get it. Um, I tell people that my younger brother has moved out of Washington, D.C. He's in North Carolina. My older brother has moved and he's in Jacksonville, Florida. My father has moved out. He's in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, several cousins, aunts and uncles. And the reason that they all have moved out of the city uh, had to do a cost of living. And not being able to live in the city and participate in the city flourishing in the same way. Um, and they felt like they were being left behind. Um, and so I, I tell folks all the time that it's been bittersweet to be able to be in the city and, and to have a nice life um, but uh, not be able to uh, go to someone's home and, and see my entire family around the dinner table. Um, and so a big part of me does feel like uh, I am uniquely positioned uh, to be able uh, to uh, create this legacy for the generations after me, for my family name. And, and uh, I take that uh, I'm excited and enthusiastic about it. And, and I take it very serious. And, and I think that when you have that sense of purpose uh, pushing you and driving you, uh, it really helps to um, you to wake up every day and be excited, but it also helps to have uh, your support system and your family and friends rooting for you uh, in every possible way. Throwing one last question on resilience before we get to our final piece of joy. I um, told you three closes. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Amen. <laughs> um, so as a husband, as a parent, uh, how does resilience show up in your world uh, when the world outside of home and family is uh, quite demanding? The notion of a second wind takes on a whole nother, whole nother vibe when you have a little one running around. One of my homeboys uh, posted that he is so amazed. He's got a five month old now. He said, I'm amazed at what I've been able to do on 10 minutes of sleep the last five months. <laughs> and he, said, he, said, he said, when he started walking, he's gonna be off the chain. So I think I think that 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 sort of sums it up. You know, you, you, um, you the notion of digging deep, you know, to really kind of see what you're made of. I think, you know, parenthood draws it out of you and, uh, and, it, and, and it restores that sense of purposeful resilience, you know, not just overcoming for the sake of overcoming, but overcoming for the sake of legacy, for the sake of, uh, uh, of creating opportunity, for the sake of maintaining and, and creating opportunity for family. I think the image that uh, Mitch has put in my mind is, being able to walk into the home and see everybody around the table, you know, resilience motivated by that is, is a different level of resilience. It's a really, uh, it's a fuel that uh, I don't know how really to describe, you know, it's almost, uh, it's almost divine in many ways. So that, that's what I've gleaned so far. So when, when mine gets into middle and high school, we'll see what I'll be able to do. <laughs> Same question to me. Is that the pause or? Yeah, that's the pause. Man. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> knock it out. 
Okay. <laughs> Resilience as a husband. Well, um, my grandmother passed away in late 2019. Um, and uh, uh, in, in uh, many ways, spoken, spoken and unspoken, members of my family started to look to me uh, in different ways. Uh, I, I, and, uh, you know, my grandmother had nine kids. So there's a long line of aunts and uncles that feel as though, you know, they're the boss of the family tree now. Um, uh, nonetheless, in, in some ways, different family members um, look to me uh, to help lead the family in different ways into the future. And so when uh, I think about resilience going forward and as a husband and, and as a son and, and as a nephew, I think about uh, how uh, will I be able to uh, look to ensure that the next generations uh, after me have a better life uh, and, and how uh, does my partnership with my wife uh, play into that uh, as, a, as, a, as a team? Uh, and, you know, I, I think that uh, COVID has been uh, interesting for all of us. Uh, and and uh, I'll share with you all that um, I see a Black woman as a therapist uh, who's been great. Uh, and I spoke with her earlier today about uh, COVID and like what that's been like for marriages and what that's been like for partnerships. Uh, and I told her, I felt like in one year, our marriage grew up like it was 10 years. Uh, and, and I think that that speaks to the level of resilience that we've had, right? But it, it also speaks to uh, our mindset going into the future. Now to Joy. What songs are giving each of you life? What songs is giving each of you life? Oh man, this this is gonna be fun right here. Let's hear oh, it. He's pulling out his his iPhones. <laughs> pulling out the Spotify. Here we go. <laughs> I, I listen to a lot of music, so I just would jump in here and say the one that's getting the most spins right now for me is uh so so there's a gospel song called isn't he beautiful by rich toba jr me and my daughter that in the kirk franklin we win i mean man that's a that's a nice bop but like she is getting played out already she loves it a little bit <laughs> but um i recently got a new a new whip and uh and i told my my dad that you can only play jazz in this in the car. <laughs> I don't know hibbity hobbity nonsense. <laughs> so uh, I've been, you know, we've been spending the Robert Glasper um, All right. quite a bit in there. A lot of a lot of monk. Uh, but one of these cats who um, I saw in DC, I think twice, uh, once at the Howard Theater, a uh, Gregory Porter. Oh man. Yeah. That dude, yeah, is that voice, yeah, hanging up <laughs> canvas, you know. So that's what I've been spending uh, here lately. So uh, my my wife, um, 
uh, cited on our wedding website that she loved uh, the fact that I was an eclectic guy um, and the fact that I listened to music from A to Z. And um, <clears throat> I really took that to heart. Uh, and so I do listen to a little bit of everything. Um, my my go-to and what I grew up on is hip hop. Uh, the first cassette that I ever purchased uh, was Biggie Smalls uh, album. Um, and so that'll always be my go-to. Right now, uh, what I listen to, I listen to, um, <clears throat> there's this song that I heard in the Caribbean by a guy named Master KG called Jerusalem or Jerusalem, yeah, Jerusalem. Uh, I, I play that song out. My wife and I know the words <clears throat> to it uh, pretty much. Um, on any given day, I, I'm always listening to something from Jay-Z. It's it just, it's sort of my theme music to life. say that uh, I, I enjoyed this discussion and, and I appreciate uh, what you all are doing and, and I see how you all uh, integrated the uh, cultural and community uh, to uh, folks' uh, line of work and their purpose. So I like the, the intersection of what you all are exploring here. Thank you. Hi, gentlemen. Yeah, have a good night. Y'all take care. Thank you for listening to The DAP Project, and thank you to Mitch and Tristan for joining us. I learned so much from this conversation about the character of an entrepreneur and an investor. Yes, indeed. Mitch and Tristan make a great team, and I'm glad they're doing this work. I'm certain that we'll be hearing of some well-earned gains from them in the future. If you're wondering where you can find Mitch, Tristan, and the work of High Street Equity Partners. High Street Equity uh, on Instagram and HighStreetEquity.com, uh, Mitch at HighStreetEquity.com, and TW at HighStreetEquity.com. He wanted to be unique and different, so he did the initials thing. Less <laughs> is more, folks. Less is more. <laughs> so we're on LinkedIn, too. We're on LinkedIn, too. And I know you want to follow the DAP project. And here you can. You can follow the DAP project at the.dap.project on Instagram and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Find us in the books as well. The TDP Be Reading Book Club is currently reading The State Must Provide by Adam Harris, where we're learning about historic inequities in higher education. Adam is a writer for The Atlantic Magazine and an outstanding author. We look forward to having him join us for a book discussion very soon. I forgot to remind everyone on the last episode that resistance is a highway with many lanes. We hope you find yours. Take care, folks. Take care.